0: Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 309. Peter Aurelian.
1: And now, pod constructed on a zeppelin by an apprentice mage, and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon. Adventures we in Sci-Fi Publishing.
0: Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. Christy and I are both playing catch up on our respective tasks, so I'm without Christy this week, but I promise she and I will be back together again next week to chat about industry news and the goings on within genre, but this week... We are joined by Pacific Northwest author Peter Arulian. Peter burst onto the scene, was that 2014? Maybe late 2013 with his book debut novel, Unremembered. And just earlier this late spring was followed up with his release, The Trial of Intentions from Tor Books. And Christy and I spent some time not only talking with Peter about the book, not only about Trial of Intentions, but Peter is a really interesting a really interesting guy. So if you have the opportunity, you should check out his website and learn more about him. He's a musician that's been classically trained, a professional musician, uh, appreciates all sorts of different tastes. So Christy and I spent some time talking with him about music which plays a prominent role in both the Unremembered and Trial of Intentions. But he also works for Microsoft in their entertainment division, namely on Xbox as a product manager. So, of course, you know, Christy was geeking out about video games as we were spending some time talking with with Peter. If you're wondering what happened to our international series of interviews with Greg Pellacci from Archipelicon. We're going to, Greg conducted about four of those, and at the same time, in a parallel fashion, both Christy and I were conducting some other conversations, so what we're going to do is certainly you will receive or be able to listen to everything from the Archipelicon series with Greg, but we're going to intersperse some of Christy in my interviews with those of Greg's conducted from Archipelicon, which, just to remind you, was a Nordic science fiction and fantasy convention held in June or early July. I believe it was in June. But anyway, you will receive at least three more of those throughout the next weeks and months. And Christy and I will intersperse a few of our other discussions in between the conversations that, that Greg had. So one of the things, if you've been listening, but not venturing out to the website, so we want to make sure that you're seeing and getting this information, is that this has been the, I'm going to call it the summer of giveaways galore. And we have had, just over the last several months, not one, but two, but three, and by the time you listen to this, we'll have had two giveaways wrap up. But we have at least another one going on right this moment. And that's the Troll Hunters giveaway from Disney Hyperion. And if you're a fan of Guillermo del Toro, this is his debut YA novel that he's co-authored. And the giveaway includes not only this book, but two other young adult horror slash genre books as part of the giveaway. And you can find all the details on the website but also this week we'll be launching another giveaway and that's the giveaway of our sponsor brenda cooper and her newest anthology so there will be more details all over the website check the show notes for this episode we have another giveaway tied to it that we'll be launching and based on the conversations christy and i've been having we'll at least have at least one more giveaway if not two more giveaways before the summer months are over. So this has definitely been the summer of giveaways and you want to make sure that you find you're watching us on Facebook, Twitter, or just coming out to the website. If you're one of the folks that subscribes to the show via RSS or, you know, iTunes and you just listen to the show, but you want free books from great authors come to the website or check out our social channels to see how you can get free books. So wanted to remind everybody about that. Another reminder, and we, I spoke about this. It was a couple episodes ago. And by the time this show drops, the voting will have likely been done for the Hugo Awards. But continuing through August, there will definitely be a vote that's still important tied to the Hugo Awards and that site selection. So if you are a member of this year's Sasquan or have already purchased, I believe a membership to next year's Mid-America Con 2, you should be able to vote on site selection. And the sites I know include, uh, the possible sites include Helsinki, Japan, DC, and I know I'm forgetting somebody else, but come out to the site. I will include the locations in the show notes. And if you want to participate in the process, buy your membership and then vote on site selection. Well, for me, I want to keep things short, really get you into our what I think is very interesting and runs the gamut of a number of different topics with Peter Aurelian. I want to get you into that conversation. Until next time, Christy will be back. Until next time, take care.
2: This episode is brought to you by Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. Award-winning author Brenda Cooper's first science fiction-only collection treats readers to human stories about the future. In Cracking the Sky, meet a physicist who searches across timelines in a desperate attempt to travel across them herself. A young woman who tries to recover the magic of a trip on a river with her grandfather. A young couple who suspects their neighbor's child is being raised by robots. And many more. Publishers Weekly says about Cracking the Sky, this capable collection of hard SF stories focuses squarely on world building, from the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. to the far reaches of space. Cooper works hard to center each piece on a way that technology has influenced human lives. Those who love technology-driven stories will find a lot to like. And James Van Pelt, author of Strangers and Beggars, calls the collection a masterful blend of hard-edged speculation tied to insightful evocations of the human spirit. To learn more, come to the show notes, episode 309, and click on the image that you'll see for Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. In fact, we're giving away a copy of Cracking the Sky, U.S. residents only. To enter, email us at publishing at gmail.com or share a tweet or Facebook post about episode 309. And be sure to tag us so we see the entry.
0: This is Brent Bowen and... Christy Cherish. And our next guest should be a lot of fun. It's... Probably going to be equal parts high tech. Christie maybe squeeing and fangirling a little bit over the high tech components, and then some high fantasy. So this should be equal parts a lot of fun. Our guest is a modern day Renaissance man. Is he's a fantasy author, professional musician, and a member of the team that works on Xbox for Microsoft. Hence Christie's squeeing and fangirling. Woohoo, video games. <laughs> Before we get into the video games, Christy, we're going to talk about his newest novel, Trial of Intentions, the second of the Vault of Heaven books, or is it? We're we're going to get into that discussion. Anyway, Trial of Intentions from Tor Books, Hit Shelves, and Late May. It's such a pleasure. Peter O'Rulian, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you guys.
0: Yeah, likewise. Us too.
1: Absolutely. So. Let's let's start off with Trial of Intentions, which is book two of the Vault of Heaven series. Um, what can you tell us about it?
3: The thing I like to to be sure people understand, and I'm, I've started sharing this as, as I've started talking about Trial of Intentions, is when I originally had the idea for the series, I had this somewhat idealistic notion. You know, we can debate if it was a good one. You know, I love the genre, and I think there's so many things I think it does better than other genres do. And I wanted to write a series that would provide an entry point, um, they, sometimes they call it gateway fiction, into the series. Um, clearly, fantasy has been popularized by things like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones um, doing so well cinematically. But I wanted to have a a series that could trade on some of the things that are become very familiar to not just readers of the genre, but sort of mass consumers who are seeing the, the visual depictions now. And provide another entry point into the genre and then very deliberately then take them from the familiar to things that I think are unique about my own vision for my series. And so the Unremembered sort of deliberately trades on some of the tropes or conventions of the genre, but by design, I'm kind of leading you carefully to another place. So a Trial of Intentions, well, at the end of the Unremembered, some of the your expectations start to become violated. And when you get into Trial of Intentions, I really turn that dial quite a bit. And so things like the trope of the orphan farm boy, you know, if you go in believing that my entire series is going to tell a coming of age story of an orphan farm boy, um, I'm going to violate that expectation. And so (laughs) I I love saying violate. Um, I
1: like the word choice.
3: (laughs) Actually, I have to give credit. I had a, a Shakespeare professor in college who talked about how Shakespeare always was violator, violating our expectations. So I can't claim credit for it. You know, when I talk about trial of intentions, I say, look, in, in some ways, if you wanted, and I deliberately wrote book two as an entry point to the series. And that had a little bit to do, well, had mostly to do, to be, to be honest with you, with the fact that I had some editorial trouble. Um, and that's no one's fault. Pairings with authors and editors are not always perfect. That happened to me. As a result, there were a lot of delays between books one and two. And so I wrote book Two, which is Trial of Intentions, is a way to start the series if you hadn't read the first book.
1: You mentioned editorial uh, challenges. Can you elaborate on those a bit for some of our, our writers in the uh, in the audience who probably be very interested?
0: Peter, a large contingent of our listeners are aspiring writers, so I think this would be of interest certainly.
3: You know, when you get into a, a publishing relationship. They pair you with an editor. I mean, sometimes it's the case that the editor finds your manuscript and they go and evangelize its, its purchase with the publisher and with the, uh, the marketing and sales teams. Um, sometimes it's the case, as it was with me, that my agent knows the publisher and sent the manuscript to the publisher who, you know, decided to buy it and then paired me with the editor. But in either case, you don't know until you get into a working relationship if you're compatible, you know? Um, this is why people date, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's so, the um, hope, anyway. <laughs> I didn't get to do any dating, you know, and it, maybe the metaphor breaks down there. But it's no one's fault. This happens, and and my my experience, and I can't speak for all publishers, but my experience is, if it's really not working, and, and that's when both parties are adult and civil and trying to work through whatever the issues are, there's an openness to discussion around moving to another editor. And I think you need to be thoughtful, and you need to have exhausted possibilities, and all of that. And that's what I did. Um, and there was, there was a lot of delay. And, you know, it, there may be a lot of reasons I'm even unaware of for that. Um, but at, at some point, obviously there's a change needed to be made. And, and my publisher was very supportive. And I landed with another editor, a woman who I had known for a long time already. And that pairing was much stronger, much better. That's actually why there was a author's definitive edition of the Unremembered. In that a lot of what I had wanted to do with the first book, because of that author and editor relationship, wasn't able to happen. When I got in a conversation with my new editor, we just decided, hey, let's go and do that kind of the way you'd intended the first time. And so they released that in April. Book two, which is Trial of Intentions, hit in May, kind of just relaunched the series, if you will.
1: Very cool. It's it's amazing how it's the art and the business that ends up getting melded together. And it's, it's easy to look at the artistic point of it, but it's that business side that, um, you know, the publisher brings to the table. So, no, that's very cool. Thank you for sharing. So jumping onto this being a, a sequel for the series, but also being an entry point, what are people going to miss if they don't pick up the unremembered?
3: Obviously, there's some character stuff. You know, you follow the characters for all the novels. It's a multi-viewpoint book. So there's some of that, for sure. And what I did, though, is when I was writing Trial of Intentions, I looked back very deliberately at all of the stuff in the first book and said, what's sort of really critical, both from a plot perspective, from a world building perspective, and from a character sort of definition or, or development perspective, in order to, to, to make sure that someone could start here. And then I, I tried to very artfully weave that stuff into the first several chapters of the second book. Um, I think the thing they'll miss, and and they may or may not care about this, some people we can debate whether my idea of bringing someone into the genre with a gateway book was was a good one or not, is they'll miss that experience of coming in with some things that feel really familiar and having those things begin to morph such that when you start reading book two, it's like these expectations begin to crash down around you. And one of my main characters, Ton who I set you up as thinking he's a orphan farm boy, I would say 80, 90% of book two, you realize kind of nothing could be further from the truth. And so you might miss a little bit of that. Wow. Like, look how he really sort of blindsided me and twisted that on me because you'll start much nearer where a lot of those really deep twists happen.
0: Excellent. One of the things you mentioned early on, Peter was this turning, you know, and even with Tom turning the, the tropes on its head, and I, you know, I found you did quite a bit of that, even with your world building. And I thought you did an excellent job of melding science, and uh, you're seeing a little bit more of that now, where you have fantasy, you know, for ostensibly fantasy stories, but science fictional type elements or science being introduced in these ostensibly fantasy stories. And I thought you did an excellent job of melding. The science in with the fantasy elements. How did you approach those sections to maintain authenticity?
3: I did a ton of research. There's a city in the second book called Abed Groves, and um, it's a city of science. You know, the people there are not practitioners of magic, and they're not even colleges in the traditional sense in that you go away to study and be a student. It's like a college of researchers, you know, mostly people who are already advanced in their various science disciplines. And, you know, this is the nerdy stuff that s- some people don't care about, but there are five colleges. There's astronomy, physics, mathematics, philosophy, and astronomy. Yeah, I may have said astronomy. Cosmology is one of those. So there's five. And I, the way, the position of those in a pentacle relative to each other is important because the nearest two colleges on the sort of points of that star bear a relationship to the, the one in the middle and kind of all the way around. And there's these great observation towers. And then there's all kinds of discussion halls and debate halls and archives and libraries uh, at the center of the city. And then most of the rest of the city is industry that supports that, whether it's lens manufacturers for telescopes or, you know, whatever the case may be. And the name of the series is The Vault of Heaven. So when people start kind of grasping, like, it kind of starts to make sense that they're principally observing the sky and trying to define what I call governing dynamic. Um, I looked a lot at, in our world, you know, mechanical law, like gravity and magnetism, and I said, hey, my world, I want to have something like this. And for me, one of the, the governing dynamics is something I call resonance. And I built this off of a couple of principles. One, in acoustics, which is a real thing in our world, and the ways in which physical things have, like, a signature when when resonated or vibrated that can actually, you know, deconstruct it becomes a a principle uh, a mechanical principle that then um can be used by those who have the ability to wield magic and so this this principle underlies already at least five magic systems and so the reader can see wow i can see how these things are unified by principles but the the manifestations of the magics are all unique because they are are discovered by different cultures and so they manifest the way they use them is different um and quickly the other thing that i married in this resonance idea which underlies my magic and a lot of the the mechanics of the world is quantum entanglement because I wanted to have magical attacks that could move through space, which is a, for me, there's a a, a lesser cost to the person who's wielding the magic to do that. It's easier. There's also uh, akin to quantum entanglement, the notion of simultaneous stirring of things at a distance. And this was something I had to solve because I needed this mechanic to work. So the ability to affect something at a distance simultaneously as quantum as a uh, quantum entanglement sort of does, although we don't fully understand that yet. I, I married these principles together into resonance. So I, I did a ton of reading about these various disciplines. And I know some about astronomy, because I'm a bit of an amateur astronomer. But I'm not a physicist. And I, I took some calculus, but I'm certainly not a mathematician. So there was just a lot of immersion reading.
0: Well, one of the things you did incorporate, and, and that's what, so now I'm getting even a better sense having you know, spoken with you and, and looking at the five disciplines, you, you speak about incorporating acoustics. And one of those is very close to you. I think one of the disciplines or one of the magic systems is you decide to incorporate your music as a discipline. And so how did you come to that decision to include your musical background in Trial of Intentions in the Vault of Heavens books?
3: It probably was going to always just happen. I'm as nerdy and fanatic about music as I am about anything. Ironically for a lot of folks, I don't listen to music when I write. And the reason is because for me, music is not a background thing. If music is on, I'm paying attention. And like I'm in Safeway buying bread. And when there's, you know, music coming over the speakers, I'm hitting my Shazam app so that I can figure out what song's playing if I can't name it. And I, I just care very passionately about music, both as a listener and also as a musician myself. So... As I got into the process of writing, it began to weave itself in the typical ways, like there are traveling troops and there's musicians there. And lots of fantasists do that. And it's a good thing to do because I think as much as religion can be a blind spot for some writers, I think music is an even bigger blind spot because I just can't imagine very many cultures where music isn't a factor. Um, But Then I went beyond that to entire cultures and societies for whom music is almost a religious thing. And then I elevated all the way to magic and I started building, um, I mean, it's where I started with my investigations around the world building for the magic is I wanted principles that underlie a magical system that I thought was unique because music magic has been done before. You know, I, I can't pretend to have read every book in the world, but my readers and even other professional writers I know who have even written music magic systems have told me they've never read a magic system like this before. So I'm proud of that part of it.
0: How did maybe writing music as a magic system surprise you about your relationship?
3: I think music is powerful. Not in the, in the literal sense where, you know, I, can, I could sing a song and kill you all the way where you are. But there's something ineffable about music. I mean, I've worked in corporate America a long time. I've worked on music as an initiative for brand building and even sort of just sales. And and corporations wish they could harness the power of the passion point that music is for people. It's hard to find something about which people are so particular and passionate. I might be unique in that I'm kind of crazy about it, but usually folks have found artists or bands or, or whatever it is that they just, they, they love, they listen to, and there's an emotional connection. There's something about that that is hard to define, um, but absolutely real. And when I started the writing you know i was kind of forced into this place where i had to start talking about that you know start i'd always felt it and most people who listen to music understand that without you know you happen to do any exposition but you know to to kind of put it on the page and and to describe it i think it helped me articulate some of those things and and at least find ways to talk about it that i think tried to convey some of that passion i have for music and you know the thing about it is is I have some sweet, lovely melodies in mind when some of the music magic is taking place. But mostly, it's not that. Mostly, it's music that is very assertive. Um, and it's that, that's the way in which it's different from... Or one of the ways in which it's different from a lot of music magic systems. It's not about a reductive sort of sweet, hey, here's the four notes of, your, of who you are, and I'm going to sing a melody and unmake you. Part of it is, you know, Wendra, who's the, the character who wields this magic in the books or one of them that wields the magic in the books, Uh, but the central one, she, for her, there's this urgency about it, and she grows an exceeding power around this. And even trying to heal somebody, instead of trying to sing them delicately back to health, she goes into it like a fight against the cancer that's inside the body. And I just love this about her because she always is on her front foot with what she's doing with her music. And that's the way I feel about music. So I, I think it helped me connect or at least articulate a little bit about how I feel.
0: I used to promote concerts in in college before I ended up having to get integrated into the real world, and yeah. and so I've seen that pa- that passion, and and probably as you mentioned, that that last bit of anger might have been even reminiscent reminiscent of a Sepultura show. So <laughs>
1: it's no, it's, it's you touch on a really good point, Brent, because it's and and you know um something you said to Peter about just um, how music can transcend so many things. You don't even have to speak the same language, yep. but chances are you know the same shows, or you know the same um, songs, or the same bands, and it's it, it really is one of those unifying factors, so that's very cool.
3: Yeah, you know, the, um, there's something very akin to what you just said there in the books, and it kind of goes back to the title of the book, it's Trial of Intentions, and one of the things Wendra learns as she's going through some education about this ability she has, is that Oftentimes, the most important thing when you're singing is what you intend, Mm -hmm. what your intention is, so much so that in one of the pivotal scenes that she's in, she goes up to perform and basically kind of go to battle in a way and do it without lyrics. It's really about her just sounding like what's in her heart and her and in her soul. And that sounds a little cheesy. Hopefully, I didn't write it that badly. But when she gets up and she performs this, she's like singing the sound of her intent You can hear that. Like if if someone is performing a song and you don't know the language, you very much can capture the emotion of what they're trying to communicate. And music is unique in that regard, right? Because you could read, if you can't read the lines of poetry, you're done. Mm
0: -hmm. Christy, I think we just found somebody that's uh, kindred spirit and understands the guitar player in Mad Max Fury Road.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. My favorite character in that movie. <laughs> That's going to be Halloween this year for a lot of people.
3: <laughs> Peter, have you seen the movie? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I appreciate. Um, I absolutely will uh, take that allusion. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Well,
0: we're going to switch. We've talked about Winder a little bit, but somebody else that I wanted to to speak about was was Ton and Ton's journey. And one of the things I found particularly interesting about Ton, and you, you talked about kind of turning tropes on its head, and and even I was speaking about, you know, the book being high fantasy, but this is one of the areas where I felt like I was actually watching uh, a contemporary view of conflict, is you have a character here that works very hard. He commits himself to preventing conflict as much as you have the other characters rushing towards it. How important was it for you to kind of show that other way?
3: I'm really glad you asked this question, because there was another thing I, I did kind of deliberately i'm sure this has been done before but uh, i just haven't read it but i'm sure it has been done and it's probably been done fantastically but i i um as much as there's a lot of the characters who are trying to galvanize nations for great armies to go to great battle and we love that about epic fantasy and um there's there's battle in my books and there's lots more of that conflict to come it occurred to me that it's not the only way to approach that kind of a problem and Ton, as the orphan farm boy that people think is the, you know you could you could say is the chosen one who's gonna go and learn powers and he's gonna defeat the gazillion person army that's one path and we've read that and that can even be continue to be written in a compelling way and be a great experience but Ton is not an orphan he's not a farm boy and what he does in this next book early on Is he says, you guys are all trying to figure out how you're going to go meet this amazing threat and defeat it when you should be trying to figure out how to prevent it in the first place. This is a bit spoilerish, so someone, you know, (laughs) someone mute if you're if you're listening. But he he has this part of his past that has now just been returned to him um, with you know his return of his memory that is many years in this place of science. And he has this notion that there are principles of science that could help them actually prevent war before it begins. And I wanted to write a character who was intelligent and passionate and capable and willing to go and kind of put as much energy into that as others would in honing their skills or building armies. And it, for me, the counterpoint of those two things and the book was a lot of fun to write. I love discovery and investigation. And so as, as Ton's going about marshaling his resources to try and answer these sort of big questions, that sort of almost mystery that he's trying to solve became some of my favorite scenes in the book. And how I tried to make that even more meaningful is I deal in the book with kind of a, a theme of suicide. Mm-hmm. And Ton comes from a very, very dark, young life and um, a lot of the world kind of challenges you know the youth and and childhood to begin with but you know it's something that I went through and I think it made its way into the book and he goes through this and he, he makes a lot of personal commitments to try and ensure that other people never become so despondent and without hope that that's the choice they make and so this becomes a lot of his motivation and he he struggles through that because he meets a, he meets up with a friend in this city of science that kind of went through this without him. And so there's, you know, the, the, I hope that wraps up the emotion there. But he's got this this intense motivation to do this and to prevent slaughter and self slaughter. And that's Ton's journey in the book. And he's he's becoming more and more capable as it goes along.
0: I think you set up his journey. You talk about the the suicide component of that and and. Some of his, you know, adolescence and his upbringing in that regard before he had his memory restored. But I even think some of the choices he had to make at the very, the very opening of the book, yeah, too with the with the quiet and what he ends up having to decide to do at that point ends up setting up his motivations quite nicely throughout as well.
3: I appreciate that.
1: Switching slight gears again, um, I've I've actually got Goodreads open in front of me, and I'm I'm just gonna read out the first part of a review um, by Felicia Day. She starts it off, she gave, um, this is for um, The Unremembered, and she gave it a a glowing review, um, but she starts it off with disclosure. I've actually, tangentially worked with this author at Microsoft with the Guild. So can you tell, so you're a group product manager at Microsoft Interactive. Can you tell us some of the things you work on and how you worked with, you know, on, on uh, or what, what your part was in the guild?
3: Yeah, so here's my guild story. I have a few, but the <laughs> one I like the best <laughs> is, um, you know, ultimately, we ended up having the guild on Xbox Live so that you could watch it. Um, and we were... Uh, if we're not the first, one of the very first to do so. And so we established a relationship with Felicia and the folks of the show to have the series. I, I think I may, may have mentioned earlier on that I did, I've done some music marketing at Microsoft. And as part of that, I mean, we were growing up, not just our music, but also our video as part of the Xbox Live sort of service offering. And I was at South by Southwest the first year that they ran something they call their Greenlight Project. And they they had people submit films or sort of web series whatever it was into a competition and the the winner would get I think they got some money and they got some some distribution assistance and because I was the Microsoft representative there for our music and our video business um, I was one of the judges there were I think there were five or six judges um, that were judging from a distilled pool of entrants. this competition and the guild was one of those this was before the guild was the guild like they were uh, out there they had their their i think just their initial episode just the Mm -hmm. the number one right Mm -hmm. and i got to view that before the rest of the universe and i got to decide whether i cast my vote for that as the winner and i did i'm sure i wasn't the only one because they won it may have been unanimous i can't remember um but so i you know i got to meet felicia and the crew um, right then that night that they they got awarded the prize and they won the first green light thing at South by Southwest, and we immediately from Xbox side began trying to contract to bring their series onto the Xbox Live service. And then over the years, not like every month or anything, but here and there I would see her at industry shows um, and we'd we'd catch up and chat just a little bit. It, it's not like we break bread every time I'm in her city, but um, <laughs> you know, when, when the book was coming out, uh, the first edition, I sent it to her because, you know, I thought she might like to read it.
1: Clearly she did from her review. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah I need, I, make, you remind me, I need to send her a book too.
1: <laughs> so you're working essentially in two different streams of entertainment. You've got sort of the Microsoft Entertainment and you've got the writing. One thing, I, whenever I see people who are, who are working have those sort of dual careers, I always wonder where they find their skill sets are overlapping and where they clash.
3: I'm in marketing. And so there's a real sense in which marketing is just storytelling. And so looking at a product and and figuring out how you want to talk about it and tell the story of that product um, to consumers is, I think, where it overlaps. I get tapped a lot in our group to write narratives and write messaging and positioning and those kinds of things that are marketing functions because they, they recognize it's something that I can do. It, a deeper connection that I haven't done that I might like to do at some point is a category that's, you know, in recent years started to be called narrative design. And it's the work that's done by writers who are helping to not just script dialogue in game, but actually put together the mythos and the world building and do franchise development. Um, a good friend of mine who worked a lot on the Halo franchise early, I've had some discussions with him on and off. Because he's now over at Amazon doing the same thing. And I would love to do that at some point in my career. I haven't done it yet. So, you know, from a marketing perspective, any marketer who's listening to this kind of gets it. There's there's a storytelling component. But it gets much stronger in terms of actual fiction when you get it onto the game production side. And I have never been on that side of it yet.
0: Yeah, okay. that's that's something that Karen Week spent a great deal of time speaking with us about was the notion of the mythos and the, the wikis that they keep around, around some of the gaming, uh, almost like a, a, akin to an author would keep a story Bible.
1: Yeah, you know? like a game Bible. A game Bible. Yeah. So you mentioned you're, you're not so much working on the video games. Um, I do have to ask, because E3 just, um, just closed up, do you have any favorite game trailers out of E3 and or most anticipated Xbox game coming out?
3: Yeah, I'll tell you uh, the, the, on the second question, it's a tie. One of them <laughs> is, is a super obvious one. Uh, the other may be less obvious. Um, I've always been one of those that with the Halo franchise, I actually like the campaign mode best because I like the sort of narrative framework that you're playing through. So I'm really interested based on what I've seen so far of Halo 5 to see the evolution of, you know, of the story because I think they, they do care a lot about the narrative. So that's, that's one anticipated game for that reason. Not like, I like the multiplayer too, but, but that's not really my thing. The other one is Cuphead. It's an indie game and it's fashioned after 1930s comic book art style. I just think it's gorgeous. I, I think it looks like just so much damn fun to play. So that's my, that's my other one. And, you know, part of it's a little bit of a darling for me because I helped launch our ID at Xbox program, which is our independent developer program. Um, so a lot of those games from independent um, game developers um, are pretty near and dear to my heart. But I think I'd probably like Cuphead anyway, just because I think the art style is so unique. As far as the trailers, like there were there were several that I thought were really good and that I liked a lot. Um, but I think the one that I liked the most, I mean, I'm really looking forward to As- Assassin's Creed Syndicate just because I love the franchise, but the trailer slash sort of game footage I liked best, um, came out of the, uh, the new Tomb Raider, the rise of the Tomb Raider. Yeah. Mm. That whole sequence where she's, you know, scaling this ice cliff. Um, it occurred to me like this is quite obviously the most awesome platforming, like, you think of platformers, right? Like donkey Kong and where you're just kind of going up a thing. She's doing that. But this is, this is like on in a, in a, to a scale that they never could have imagined. And I just, I thought the graphics are, are fantastic. I thought the whole problem of getting up a cliff uh, this way was interesting. So I, I'm really looking forward to that game. I hope they give me the opportunity to do that kind of gameplay. Cause I, I like that kind of stuff where it's not just, you have to shoot something. Yeah. Uh, uh, not that I don't, you know, I have nothing against that. Uh, not <laughs> I
1: like how you were real careful on that one
3: to jump in. He, <laughs> to <shoot stuff. laughs>
0: he occasionally likes to violate the characters in the video games. For...
3: <laughs> wow. Yes, I'm mean, get known for violation. Uh, but yeah, so to so Rise of the Tomb Raider, I, I think that they, it looks like they've done some really interesting things with that game.
0: Christy, any other Inquisition questions around video gaming?
3: No, no, I,
1: I'm, um, no, I, I, love that Tomb Raider one too. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm gonna leave you alone on the video games. <laughs> all right.
0: the, the witness may step from the.
3: I <laughs> That's, That's awesome, though. <laughs> no, no, I don't feel, I don't feel violated at all. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, this sounds like another. I will add this before we go off games. It'll sound obvious, but uh, I, actually, looking forward to the new Gears of War game too. Mm-hmm. Um, with that game i kind of like the darker almost horror element there's some beasties in that trailer if i'm remembering right that are almost a cthulhu thing you know they open their mouths and these tentacles come shooting out um and these little yeah. weird mouths and you know how can you not love a gun that's got a chainsaw so yes
1: yeah
0: it's always a favorite
1: <laughs> <laughs> like a bonus
0: it is a bone it is a bonus Oh, I know. I, I paid so much money to unlock things for my son. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and it always involves a chainsaw. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's, it's
3: just genius.
0: <laughs> it is genius. Reach right into my pocket, I tell you. I'm out of bullets.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Darn if if I just
1: give them $5, they'll give me this awesome armor and I yeah. need it to get to the next level. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. I right. need right. Come up with a different acronym for DLC. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Peter you've been uh, more than gracious with with your time with us and a lot a lot of fun and humoring us with uh, throwing you a little bit of wrench and talking gaming too a- anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners that maybe christy or or I missed while uh, while we were violating you
3: <laughs> um no man I think your your questions were really good you know the things with in, trial of intentions I'd like to leave people with. Are you know? It really is a place where I begin to go pretty hard at turning the tropes. Good friend of mine is half of the James S.A. Quarry duo, uh, Ty Frank. Frank, yeah. And um, uh, he said he said to me, he goes, uh, he calls it a deconstruction of fantasy tropes. So you know, I don't know, I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to deconstruct, but I like how he thinks about it because with Trial of Intentions, there's a lot of that where you know what you may have thought was going to happen is most certainly not. Uh, and then, you know, for the folks who have liked the music magic, which is touched on in the first book, there's a lot more of that in this in this novel. The other thing that happens is you start to get a peek inside the Born, and you start to learn that mm-hmm. even there, some of the races that are the mobsters and the evil and the bad guys aren't really kind of what you think. Um, And so I hope what I'm establishing with the readers is that the things that they believe they really need to challenge themselves because the same thing will happen with book three. A lot of the expectations you have will be violated. (laughs) Well,
0: well, let me ask you that because you mentioned Ty too. and and Ty knows a thing or two about the fantasy genre as well, because he, he he runs around with a, a gentleman by the name of George R. R. Martin in that part of the region too, so he knows some things around the genre and the tropes there. But this is what I, I've seen it written out there that we're expecting a book three. Are we looking to commit trilogy, or what are we looking for with respect to the series? What are we looking at with respect to the series?
3: I love that turn of phrase, commit trilogy. Yeah, you know, I've always said I don't know how many books it is, and I'm suspect of. Of writers who think they do I feel like you'd have to have plotted to the nth degree to be able to say that with any degree of confidence Um, because otherwise you're either cutting yourself off too soon or you're padding and I don't want to do either of those things when I started I thought I was writing a six to eight book series after finishing book two I think it's a five or six book series because I have absolutely no desire to write longer than I need to Partly because I have other books I want to write, and partly because I, you know, I think readers want to have the story and then move on. So it's more than three books. That's certain. How much beyond that I don't know. Um, I have book three mostly written. The movements and the and the broad strokes beyond that, and the ending I know, but the detail and you know in between there isn't isn't fleshed out. I leave myself room and you know, to grow and to play. But it, I don't think it's going to. Well, I know it's not going to, to go on and on. Um, and that's part me learning from sins of predecessors who it, it felt as if they were kind of going on when they didn't need to. And part of it, to be really honest with you, is just a, a function of I'm still, I'm still a working stiff. You know, I walked in the door and chowed down a pork chop like faster than is probably healthy to make this interview. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> So is, is, you know, I, I, and I've got a family and I'm, and a musician. And so balancing all of these things is really difficult because the day job that we've talked about, it's not a nine to five job. It, you know, it's a, it's a very time intensive encompassing job and there are certainly rewards for that. But w- what it means is, is like, I'm already at the point where I can, if I don't like, if I'm not able to start working full or uh, writing full time, I can almost calculate for you how many books I can write before I die now. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
3: So, you know, when you start to put that lens on it, then you say, okay, well, I want to write this series really crisply, like compelling. I want it to be full, but I don't, like, I don't want it to drag out because I have other books I'm passionate about writing. And until the day comes when I can write full time, I'm going to use, you know, because I get up at 3.30 in the morning to write before I go off to Xbox. And I have to be very judicious with that three hours before I start getting ready for work. And so I'm not going to linger on stuff you know there's no purpose for me to pad the series isn't
1: running you you're you're running the series
3: yeah and you know i learned that i learned that a little bit from martin someone i was talking to him you know it was the first time i met ty and we were at comic con and um someone said said something to to george and he's like i tell my characters what to do so when when writers say yeah my character did this i had no idea they just started (laughs) disobeying me i'm like what the hell are you talking
0: about? <laughs> There's a pill for that. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's such a fanciful notion. It sounds so mystical, like you know, writers were tapping into this otherwhere, and and these these characters are are really alive, and they don't obey what you know. That's all bullshit. You you, you are the writer. You get to decide this stuff about your characters. Now, it's OK if you explore, you know, left turns and certainly writers who are gardeners with the metaphor that George uses or panthers, as other mm-hmm. people say, they may make these choices along the way that work out. And sometimes they have to unwind them because they didn't work out. But yeah, I, uh, I, I kind of know what my characters are going to do. They kind of do what I tell them to do um, so I can kind of get the series written.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll look bo- for the folks listening to this that haven't checked out trial of intentions definitely do and we'll peter we'll look forward to the additional books however many that might be and for the time being knowing the demands on your time and knowing that you probably need to watch that pork job down uh we're, we're gonna we're gonna thank you for your time and it's been awesome to speak with you
3: absolutely yeah, thanks for having me both of you
0: yeah awesome
1: Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at Publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.